There is a, uh, a ballet company in Providence, Rhode Island that has been putting on performances of the Christmas classic, The Nutcracker, for almost 40 years. Uh, this November, though, they had a, a major scare when thieves broke into the ballet company and stole more than 50 costumes and headpieces, including the iconic character's costume. Uh, you can't have the Nutcracker without the Nutcracker costume, and so this was a big problem. The thieves stole reportedly 52 uh, different items from this ballet company, worth a total of $30,000. But there was some good news to this story, as you might suspect, or else you probably wouldn't be hearing about it uh, this morning in church. Uh, after hearing about this news, uh, there were about a dozen different dance companies around the nation that heard about this news and, and offered to lend their own Nutcracker costumes and headpieces to the Providence production. Uh, as the news spread about this theft, the Providence ballet director said he was inundated with phone calls from fellow ballet directors around the country who heard about it and said, hey, look, we're not doing the Nutcracker this fall or this, this winter. We would love to help you out. What can we do? He went on to say that the ballet world is this incredibly tight-knit community where people are constantly looking out for one another and helping each other, and we are so grateful for the outpouring of support that we have already seen from so many of our brothers and sisters. So this story warmed quite a few hearts this uh, holiday season. You may have heard about it through some of the other news outlets. Uh, it's heartwarming because it, it demonstrates for us the depth of human kindness when people of similar passions and interests can band together to help one another out. But I, I tell you all that this morning as, as a point of contrast because, because Jesus calls us to an even deeper level of love, the kind of love that we'll see in this passage that we'll read together here this morning. It is, it is love for, for those who are not like us. For love for those who we might consider to be outside the camp. Love that Jesus goes so far as to say should be love even for your enemies. That's the kind of distinctly Christian love that is at the center of the passage of Scripture we'll look at today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 4. We're in the midst of this series on daring faith as we make our way through John's gospel today. We're ready for for one of these unique uh, stories that is only found in John, it is the encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well in Samaria. It is unique to John. It is another of these, like Nicodemus last week. It is a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture. And so today, what I'd like for us to do is to hear these words, to hear the Word of God. You'll see these verses on the screen. You can certainly follow along there in your own Bibles as well. We'll just make our way through this text together and we'll pause a few times and make a few comments and we'll reflect on the love that we find here, the love of Christ found in John 4. Look with me now, John 4, this is the word of God. We'll begin in verse 1 and look at the first four verses together. Here's the word of the Lord. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And then the last line, now he had to go through Samaria. Let's pause here and just reflect for a minute. 
geographically just to get our bearings. So Jesus has been in Judea. He is heading north to Galilee. And to get there, geographically at least, yes, it's true, he did, he did need to pass through Samaria. If you were to set out this morning from North Alabama and you were bound for Kentucky, the fastest route from here, you get north on Interstate 65 and you have to go through Tennessee to get there, right? So geographically, we understand Judea, Samaria is just north of there, Galilee even further north. But there's only one issue here. It doesn't seem as if John is talking about geography. I don't think that interests him as much. You see, the the pious Jews of Jesus' day would have gone out of their way to avoid a place like Samaria. In fact, they would, they would go around Samaria to keep from becoming, in their minds, unclean. And the reason for that is because the Jews of, of Jesus' day considered the Samaritans to be ethnically and even spiritually inferior. They considered them outsiders. A little Old Testament history while we're paused here. In 722 BC, the Assyrians come into the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes, and they take those citizens into captivity, really never to be heard from again. And they take them into captivity and they they bring in other uh, captive peoples and those individuals intermarry with the people who are left in the land. And by the time we come to the New Testament, those individuals are known to us as the Samaritans, okay? And so you find these, these Samaritans, they're kind of a, a unique group of people in the eyes of, of the Jews of Jesus' day. By and large, they weren't idolaters, but they did worship a little differently. They only considered the first five books of the Bible to be inspired. All those prophecies, all those other things, they just kind of ignored. They said, that's, that's our Bible. So there's already a distinction between the Samaritans and the Jews on that. As we'll see as we read through this, they also have an issue with the place where worship should, should occur. Although the Jews would say that Jerusalem, and specifically the temple, is the place where God is most honored and worshipped, the Samaritans, well, they don't have access to Jerusalem. So they choose to worship on a mountain, Mount Gerizim, instead. So the Samaritans and Jews, they have this, this, um, they have this feud of sorts that, it, that runs back centuries prior to our story here, You can look at a place like Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah 4, and you find the people who are opposed to Nehemiah's work of building the walls back up around Jerusalem. Those are Samaritans. So the Jews of Jesus' day, this is the main point, the Jews of Jesus' day considered the Samaritans to be outsiders in every meaningful way. So when John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria... He's not talking about a geographic necessity so much as a theological one. Jesus had to go through Samaria because Jesus was on a mission. And that mission crystallizes here as we read. The next two verses, verses 5 and 6 of John 4. So he, Jesus, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, another detail. The sixth hour, that's high noon. Jesus arrives at the well in the middle of the day. He's tired from all this walking, so he sits down. And, and it, as we read, it seems as if it's a fairly desolate scene, at least at first. 
And that's no surprise, because in the ancient world, the custom was to go and draw your water either early in the morning or late in the evening. Number one, it was cooler. You don't go draw your water at high noon because it's hot. (laughs) But maybe more importantly than that, going in the mornings or in the evenings when everyone else went meant that drawing water was a deeply social enterprise. It was the time when you went with your friends, your neighbors, It was the time that you caught up on what was happening with uh, the people who lived maybe uh, just down the block from you, what was going on in the village. It was a deeply social time of interaction. It was a communal act. Unless, unless, of course, you were an outsider. Let's keep reading. We'll look now at a a lengthy passage here, starting in verse 7, running down through verse 18. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come back. And she replies, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. So we have a nameless Samaritan woman who arrives here at the well to draw her water. She's alone, no friends accompanying her, no conversation swirling around, no neighborhood gossip. The woman has avoided the the crowded times to come and draw water in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. Instead, she's come at at an off-peak hour. (laughs) She's come at noon, she's come when she expects the well, I believe, to be desolate. But that's right where she finds Jesus. In a moment of, of desolation, in a time when she thinks she is all alone, that's where she finds Jesus waiting on her. And Jesus initiates a conversation with her. It's a, it's a conversation that at first blush is about water, and by now, as we've gone through John's gospel, we, we understand, don't we, that as we read through this gospel, things are rarely as they seem. Uh, yes, at one level, the conversation is about physical water, about H2O, because as we said, Jesus has, has been walking here for quite some time. He is literally thirsty, so that's how the conversation begins here for Jesus. But in John's gospel, there's always this, this deeper meaning In John's gospel, things aren't always as they seem, and so here too we find a reference to water that is really an entree to a deeper reality. It's a sign that points to the water 
from on high, the living water that Jesus seeks to give. So much like last week when we talked about the Nicodemus passage, and we said there are 20 different references in John's gospel to water. And just like Nicodemus struggled to understand what it means to be born again, to be born of water and spirit, so too now we have this kind of conversation going on where it seems to be about one thing, it seems to be taking place at one level, but Jesus wants to elevate the conversation to take it to a a deeper place. As modern readers, I think it's also a little difficult for us to understand just how scandalous this interaction is. Uh, Pious Jews, uh, particularly pious Jewish males, did not speak to women in public. Not in Jesus' day. Unless their husbands were were present, the pious Jewish male would not not do that. Especially a, a Jewish rabbi... And especially, especially, an unmarried Jewish rabbi like Jesus. That's just not, not the way it worked. And one, uh, one reference in the ancient uh, literature talks about this one rabbi, and he is, he is praised for his piety because as he's walking down the street, he sees his mother approaching. And out of piety, because it's so improper for this Jewish rabbi to speak to a woman in public, again, it's a different world, okay, but out of piety, he crosses over to the other side of the street so he won't run into his mother and have to speak to her. I don't know about you, but where I came from, we wouldn't call that piety, right? (laughs) My mom especially would not consider that to be piety, but that's the world, that's the world that this story takes place in. But Jesus doesn't seem to have a whole lot of use for those kinds of social norms and those kinds of customs. Instead, he initiates a conversation with this woman. And I I believe firmly that no one is as shocked by this as she is. She says, how does this work? What are you doing? Jews and Samaritans don't interact. One translation says, uh, this puts it this way, Jews and Samaritans do not share utensils. Maybe you have like a little study note and down at the bottom in your Bible, that's that's what it says in alternate translation. It's as if she's saying, you, know, you want me to give you a drink of water, but you, know, you want to borrow my, my camelback, you want to borrow my cup that I'm using, but don't you guys think that we have cooties? <laughs> don't, don't you guys think that if I've used this cup that it's somehow defiled? That's, again, the world that this story takes place in. But Jesus does something really amazing here. He asks, he, he asks her a question, and that question is really the question that she is, is yearning to ask of him. He says to her, will you give me a drink? And he does so because this woman thirsts deeply. She's longing for something more than, than what she's found. The text doesn't say why those previous marriages ended. So we can't, we can't begin to comment on that either. There are probably a variety of reasons that led to those five marriages failing. What we do know is that with that sort of checkered past, coupled with the fact that she is currently living with a man who is not her husband, we know how this woman would have been viewed in her, in her time. She is thirsting for something and so they go back and forth talking about water and john kind of winks at us off stage because he knows we're in on it she's talking about water from the well down below and he's talking about water from on high from above she's talking about physical h2o and he's talking about this water this this spring that wells up to eternal life and so when jesus says that her interest is peaked and she says give me this kind of water come on, I, I would love to have that kind of water. And she replied, and that's when, that's when Jesus says, go and call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And he lays out the circumstances for her entire 
her entire past. And in light of that, I think then we begin to understand. We begin to understand maybe why she comes to draw water all by herself, why she comes to draw water at high noon. We may not know her name from the text, but I can guarantee you her name is well known in her little village, but for all the wrong reasons. There are a lot of names that cultures use to describe women who have had these kinds of experiences, and none of them are appropriate for our setting here this morning. She's the kind of woman who I think mothers pull their daughters close when she walks down the street and they whisper in their ears, you take a good look, honey, because that's not the kind of woman you want to become. And your heart breaks for her because even among the outsiders, she's an outsider. Even among the Samaritans, she's an outcast. And I'm not sure she would have fared any better in our culture today in a culture that continues to demean women and continues to define them by their appearance and how they look, I'm not sure she would have fared any better in a culture like our modern culture today. But thankfully, Jesus is, is at work to create this new kingdom culture we talked about last month, a kingdom culture that, that, views, her, that views her differently. And, you know, even though she's, she's made plenty of, of bad choices, even if we don't want to read too much into those other marriages that have failed, she is currently living in a relationship that does not honor God, that is not the way the Lord wants it to be. But in spite of all that, Jesus refuses to treat her with anything less than the dignity she deserves as a person made in the image of God. And in the eyes of Jesus, despite all that baggage that she brings to the table, you know, Jesus does not consider her unworthy of redemption. Jesus doesn't see her solely on the basis of who's an insider and who's an outsider according to the social norms of his day. But our Samaritan woman is, is pretty, she's pretty quick on her feet. <laughs> she has a trick up her sleeve here because when Jesus begins to push on the bruise, when Jesus begins to point out this, this area of pain, this checkered past that she has, she responds with, with kind of a ninja move. <laughs> She responds by throwing out this, this question, this issue. She responds by, by talking about, of all things, worship. Look in the next few verses. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman or ma'am, uh, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, I guess he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Our Samaritan woman knows what we know too well, that uh, discussions about worship can be awfully divisive. So she poses a worship question that's hundreds of years old. Okay, who's right? Jews or Samaritans? Where do you worship? Mount Gerizim or, or Jerusalem? 
And when things get a little too personal, she, she knows that it's easy to toss out one of those little, uh, you know, grenades. She can toss out that question, and, and the ensuing worship wars can create a smoke screen to allow her to slide out the back door. When things start pressing in, and, she, and, and Jesus wants to talk about her checkered past, she leads it back out, leads the conversation back out into that abstract area of, of theology. And I've, I've long believed that that is why the woman poses the question that she does, because it's a ninja move to get out of the conversation that Jesus is wanting to have with her about her checkered past. But what she doesn't realize is that Jesus is a black belt. That Jesus can take that question and he deals with it and he answers it. And she wants to know, okay, so where do we worship? Is it Jerusalem or is it Mount Gerizim? Who has it right? The Samaritans or the Jews? And he kind of says, okay, you want to know? It's the Jews. They have it right because salvation comes from the Jews. But you know what? Worship isn't about where. It's about who. And that's what I want to talk to you about, Jesus seems to be saying. The heart of worship is not a where. The heart of worship is a who. And it is Jesus. And when he speaks here, He brings good news to her because she gets to this point where I think she's really just trying to end the conversation and she sort of, in my mind, she shrugs her shoulders, you know, she's like, okay, well, you know, it's been nice talking to you, but you know, whenever the Messiah comes, I guess he'll be the one that'll have the final word. You know, I appreciate your opinion. Um, I'm, I'm really just need to get back to the house and take care of some things. But when the Messiah shows up, I guess he's the one who will have the final word. And Jesus then does something he never does He reveals his identity fully and completely to this Samaritan woman. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the one who can provide what you've been seeking out in those broken relationships. I am the word of life. I am living water. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And that truth changes her life just as it changes ours as well. I want you to see how her story ends. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Isn't it just like God to use a woman like this to be an evangelist to her town? Only God does that. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Last week we talked about John 3 and Nicodemus, and we could think of John 3 as the gospel to insiders. As we noted last week, Nicodemus is many things. He is a pious Jewish male. He is a Bible-believing religious person. He's a respected community leader. He's a Pharisee, yet he comes to Jesus under the cloak of darkness. He's, He's really something of an admirer of Jesus at first, and it's only as the story progresses that he slowly comes to faith in Jesus, it seems. Nicodemus is the one who seeks out Jesus. Nicodemus is the one who asks questions of Jesus. And Nicodemus is the one who puzzles then over the answers to his questions that Jesus has given, has given him. But in every meaningful way in John 3, Nicodemus is an insider. And we come to John 4. And if we can think of John 3 as the gospel to insiders, then we can think of John 4 as the gospel to outsiders. Because this Samaritan woman is the complete antithesis of Nicodemus. He is male, she is female. He is Jewish, she's Samaritan. 
He's known for his piety, whereas her claim to fame is her string of broken relationships and her current live-in boyfriend. Whereas Nicodemus seeks out Jesus at night, Jesus is, is the one who seeks out this woman in broad daylight at high noon. The name of Nicodemus is well known. As we said last week, he is the teacher in all of Israel. And yet to this day, 2,000 years later, the name of this Samaritan woman is lost. She is a nameless, faceless woman in this text. In every meaningful way, this Samaritan woman is an outsider. And yet, as different as these two figures might be, you know what they're united by? You know, you know what they share in common? They have Jesus in common. And thankfully, if we have Jesus in common, that's enough. Because Jesus is the one who unites these two stories. We have the gospel to insiders, we have the gospel to outsiders, and smack dab in the middle of those two, we have the most beloved passage of Scripture in all the, the Scriptures. And we might just say this is the gospel for the world. John three sixteen. For God so loved, who? The world. He gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The good news about Jesus is good news for both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. As we said last week, this is a promise for today. Eternal life begins now. That, that promise was there for Nicodemus. It's there for the Samaritan woman. Thankfully, it's there for us even now as well. The gospel is good news because it reaches to both insiders and outsiders. Because let's face it. At one level, we're all outsiders. We may clean up real well, but we're all outside the camp because we're all broken by sin. As Chris prayed a minute ago, at the foot of the cross, it's all level ground, folks. We're all standing there. But thankfully, we worship and praise the name of, of, of the Son of God, whose work is to take us from, the, from being outside and to make all of us insiders, because with Jesus, there are no outsiders. It is his work to bring us into the fold, to bring us redemption and hope and mercy and all the things that we talk about. So the heart of worship is not a place, it is a person, and it is Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news for the entire world. If you need to respond to the good news of Jesus, I hope you'll do so. Let's stand and sing our song of invitation together. I can hear 